Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of the Fundamism Podcast. I'm your host, Paul J. Long, coming to you from a different location today. No, it's not the shop. No, it's not Charlie Hustle. We're coming to you all the way from the electronic contracting company. Why, you might ask? Well, hold your horses. We're going to get to it. We're brought to you, as always, by our sponsor, our ride-or-die, Charlie Hustle. Go to charliehustle.com to learn more. And if you haven't swooped up your very own What's Good shirt, the Fundamism and Charlie Hustle collabo, go to fundamism.com. You're in for an absolute treat today, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I think that oftentimes throughout life, it doesn't matter what it is, we all struggle. And we all struggle specifically with things in which we are addicted to, whether it's your phone, uh, a specific vice, alcohol, whatever it may be. The gentleman that we are featuring today has quite a tremendous story. Kyle Hobbin, what's good, brother? How are you? I'm well, Paul. Thanks for having me. Uh, Really looking forward to it. So ultimately, I think that, uh, as I stated, we all struggle And you and I connected It's something that gives us both very much a great deal of strength. But before we get there, I got to ask you the same question I ask every guest. What do you do for fun, sir? Well, what I do for fun has changed, actually, over the years uh, (laughs) since since, uh, I made some changes in my life. I would say, uh, number one, I I go to the gym. That's my my number one hobby. That's my favorite thing to do. And uh, as you know, I spend a lot of time there. So... Uh, but I also am into riding Harleys, uh, shooting guns. I love going to rock and roll concerts, and uh, and I travel a lot, too. You didn't mention wearing tight T-shirts in there. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's also a hobby, though. I'm into that, too. <laughs> so you mentioned the gym. Uh, that is where we connected. So what a perfect segue, because uh, I've been going to Lifetime for some time now, mm-hmm. Lifetime Fitness, located in Lenexa, Kansas. And around the same time that I went, I'd always see this jacked dude. I mean, absolutely jacked, always in a tank top, tats from head to toe. Uh, I mean, traps all the way up to the top of his earlobes. Um, but also, like, somewhat intimidating, but very approachable, which seems counterintuitive. But what ultimately ended up happening is I, I saw this gentleman over and over and over again. I worked up the courage to go and say hello. And I found out how down-to-earth he was and how amazing his story was. So that gentleman was Kyle. And we bonded over, believe it or not, wrestling. Um, <laughs> I've never wrestled a day in my life, Kyle, but I think you have. Is that accurate? I, I have indeed, yes. I, I wrestled uh, I wrestled all the way up. Uh, I won state a couple of times in high school in Nebraska. Uh, wrestled for a couple of years at the University of Nebraska at Kearney. Then I came down here and uh, got involved in the wrestling community down here. Coached, uh, was ran the kids club at Shawnee Mission Northwest for for many years, and um, now both my kids have, have uh, one's wrestling at Aquinas, the other one wrestles at the Coast Guard Academy. Jeez. Uh, we're going to talk about that because obviously, uh, man, Coast Guard Academy, what a different world. Indeed. Um, and probably would have provided us both a little structure to our <laughs> life growing up, but nevertheless, your son's getting into it, so we'll talk more about that. But, you know, prior to meeting you and uh, a couple of years prior to that, I didn't even really know what wrestling was. I mean, I equated wrestling to Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and uh, Bam Bam Bigelow. Which is also and, awesome. Yes, yes. Heck yeah. And matter of fact, I've told, I've told this story before, but I admired those guys so much in the WWE, WWF. It was never like, it was never wrestling that I enjoyed. It was their personalities. Mm-hmm. Like, I love this persona that they put on. And, and quite honestly, I leverage a lot of, of that confidence that I got from watching WWE, WWF uh, now in my life. I leverage that kind con- like the Ric Flair. Well, you and I have a common love of Ric Flair. <laughs> I mean, right. and, and, and I remember you made that post one time, and I saw you do the Ric Flair, and I, and I commented right away. I said, that was awesome. <laughs> So yeah, that is, uh, a lot of wrestlers are are not into the WWE because they say it's an insult to wrestling. I think it's awesome. Sure. I've always enjoyed it. Uh, so well, it doesn't surprise me because I think that your personality lends itself to uh, <laughs> it other personalities or gravitating towards them. So ultimately, wrestling big in my life. Fast forward, cat suit stuff happens. That's how we connect. We mm-hmm. start talking about wrestling. I told I showed you a picture of me in a wrestling singlet. You start cracking up, and we start talking, and. You you started before we turned this podcast on. You, you were talking about judgments mm-hmm. and how people would potentially look at you in the gym and think, "Who the hell is this guy? What the heck does he do?" If they knew what I did, they would be blown away. Right, right. Well, I, I, that's that's part of a. I, I, I do that a little bit on purpose because I, I I don't I don't ever want to assume some some identity that's not me. 
Uh, I, I always say that 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 I you know I'm a businessman from eight to five, and I'm a dirtbag after that. Uh, <laughs> So 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 when I go to the gym, I'm tatted out from from my neck down to my to my uh, my my waist, uh, and and uh, I'm big and, and I lift a lot, and I I probably look to some people intimidating, sure. like kind of a dirt bag, which is fine. Uh, and and many people would be shocked to know that I'm actually uh, a professional uh, who who uh, who is fairly successful, and uh, and I don't uh, I don't probably match what they see when they see me at the gym. Right? Uses that term professional very loosely, yes, my friend. Indeed, I do. <laughs> and and I think that that's the amazing thing that as we started talking and we got past the surfacey stuff and wrestling and the gym, we really start talking about emotional intelligence mm-hmm. and development of people. And I, I just like, as we talked, um, and we're, we're those knuckleheads that go to the gym and we're there to lift, but if somebody wants to engage, maybe we engage. we'll talk right. yes. <laughs> specifically over something that gives us strength. So just the, what really surprised me and took me, uh, aback was your level of emotional intelligence and the importance that you place on people development. And so it just really created a lot of interest in me. And I ask a lot of questions, as many of you guys know. And I found out you have a tremendous story. And uh, to hear you say it, you weren't always that interested in people development. Is no. that? Yeah, that would be that would be accurate. Yes, <laughs> yes. No, I was interested in just me. So how did you? So let's talk about that. So you were interested in just you. Uh, you're into Harley's. You're into the gym. You're into people. You're into people development. You said that your definition of fun has changed considerably over time. Um, tell me about that transition. What were you into prior to the things that you listed? Well, Paul, everything everything that I did in in my previous life was instant gratification based on what I wanted at that moment. Mm. That was that was who I was. I, I was an incredibly selfish individual um, who I did whatever I felt like doing, whenever I felt like doing it. And if it felt like fun uh, at that moment, I was going to do it. It may have been, I may regret it terribly later. Sure, but I was going to do it. So my fun was all about what do I feel like doing right now and damn everybody else, yes. right? including my wife, including my kids. It didn't matter. Mm. Uh, my parents, I just did whatever I felt like doing. And uh, it's, it was, so I did a lot of different things for fun, um, but it wasn't really fun. I was, uh, I was trying to, uh, to feed a, a, a hole uh, that I had in, in my, in my life. And uh, so it was all about um, just, just replacing something I was missing. Mm. So, you know, as, as you listen to this particular podcast, guys, I hope that, that everybody can relate um, to not just the topic that we're talking about, but as we dive deeper, everybody struggles with addiction and everybody struggles with filling voids or holes in your life. Whether you're insecure and you worry about what everybody else is thinking of you, or um, you have a terrible job in your head and you get home at night and you drink your worries away, or you're not as present as you think you should be as a mother, or as a father, and as a result, you you turn to some vice and it's an escape for whatever it may be. We all are filling voids in our life. And, and truth be told, I would say that in some part, that is the intent behind fundamentalism is to fill voids, mm-hmm. but to do so deliberately in a manner that's going to move you forward as opposed to something that's holding you back like an anchor. Right. And to hear you say it, that was kind of like where you were at. There was a huge anchor hanging on to you, and it was dragging you down. Well, that's a good way to put it. I, I, I say I was bound by the chains of addiction. Mm. Um, I, I was bound from the time I, I drank. I didn't drink till I was 17 years old. My my uh, my mother warned me for years that um, that if I drank I was going to end up like my father, uh, and and his father before him uh, who who died of alcoholism, and I, and I didn't want to hear it. Um, as soon as I took that first drink, uh, I was I was a prisoner of uh, of alcohol for the next almost thirty years. Really? Uh, no, twenty years. I guess so. I was seventeen. I quit drinking when I was thirty six. Uh, so almost twenty years, uh, I was bound by those chains of alcoholism and addiction, and. Uh, it was uh, it was an awful existence. So let's talk about that, if you don't mind. No, no. So you start drinking at seventeen. What was your vice at the time? Like anything? But I I, I I will never forget it. The first night I drank, I was on the way to the county fair, and I'd never drank before. And I got into a, a car with a friend of mine. Um, we had been to church together that morning, and uh, he was a he was a couple years older than me, and he had a twelve pack of Bud Dry. Bud Dry, yeah, only the classy yeah. stuff. Yeah, the throwback. Yeah, uh, Bud Dry, and, and the and the fair was about uh, uh, four or five miles away. I drank four Bud Drys in about four miles, and the first time I ever drank. Uh-huh. Whoa! Oh yeah, and I was uh, I was hammered, and uh, and everyone in the town knew it. My town was nine hundred people, and everyone in town knew it. I was drunk, and uh, and it got around fast, and uh, my parents were displeased uh, to say the least. Uh, and, it, and it, but but I was hooked, man. It was over uh, once I had that feeling of of. Of taking that, 
whatever I was missing mm. and, and filling it with that alcohol. Um, it, it just steadily progressed uh, from there. So, But yeah, I'll never forget that first night uh, and, and, and the first time I drank because I've gone back to it many times and wondering what I would do different. Sure. Well, you, you told me at one point in time that you were very much so a functioning alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And you have a lovely wife. I see her at the gym all the time. Mm-hmm. You have two awesome kids, right? Yes. And, and you established that foundation while you were going through these <laughs> yeah. challenges in life. So how did, it, how did you get there? How were you capable of getting all of this stuff that could potentially remove yourself from this hole while still adhering to that lifestyle? Well, that, that's, that's an interesting question, Paul. And I'll, and I'll tell you, it, it's like any addiction. It's progressive, right? It, 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 the, the, the disease progresses. It becomes steadily worse. And so and it, it always goes the same way. I, I, was a, I was a binge drinker for years. And I, I was still able to go to class. I still got good grades in college. I still went to college on a wrestling and an academic scholarship. Uh, I, I, I functioned just fine, even though I would get in fights. I'd get in jail. I always say that I, I, I didn't. <laughs> you just casually threw in, yeah. I'd get in fights, well, I'd get in jail. I was allergic to alcohol. It made me break out in handcuffs. Okay. Uh, so, so, oh no! I, I've been. I went to jail. I, I, I have no idea how many times I went to jail for fighting and for for uh, uh, disorderly conduct, disturbing the peace, uh, peeing in alleys. You name it. I went to jail for it. Um, and I never thought it was a problem. Like it was like, well, this is just me. Right? It's this fun. Is normal. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> so, uh, so I never really, uh, really thought it was much of a, of a problem. And and so uh, I met my wife when I was nineteen, and she was uh, just turned seventeen. I was working construction in the summer when I was at college. Uh, we got together and uh, we essentially stayed together. This is a funny story. We stayed together um, for about a year. Uh, we broke up because I didn't have enough money to buy her a Christmas gift. Uh, That's and, why you broke up. Yeah, I broke up with her because I didn't want to buy. I oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I decided I didn't want to get her a Christmas Savage. gift. So, Happy holidays, guys. So, <laughs> so we no, and she had already bought me a gift. So a couple months later, she broke into my house and stole her gift back. So yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So we broke up for a while. And then the next year, I was in Lincoln. She had gone to college by this time. And I got in a fight. Uh, I was with a bunch of my buddies who played football at Nebraska. I got in a big fight, got thrown in jail. And I didn't, there was no cell phones back then, right? So I uh, I went to jail and uh, I didn't know who to call. All my buddies were still partying, right? And I didn't really want to spend the night in jail. Uh, so the only number I knew in Lincoln, Nebraska was my wife's number at her sorority house. And so I called her and said, can you come get me? She said, are you in jail again? I said, yes. And she said, okay. And so she came and got me. I spent the night. Uh, I think she was still in the dorm then, actually. I spent the night and uh, got up, went to breakfast the next morning. I thought to myself, you know, I probably should marry this woman because I ain't going to find anybody else who's going to put up with this kind of shit. Right. right? So, so, uh, so but we at first back, you should buy her a gift. Yeah. <laughs> so we, so we got back together, uh, and, uh, and we've, we've been together ever since. Uh, so we started, uh, we got together in, in about June of 1994. Uh, we broke up briefly and got together probably the next, um, later in 1995. And, uh, we've been together ever since. And, uh, she's been my rock. She's what got me through all this. Mm. Um, I, I made her swim through a river of shit, um, to me. To be married to me, Paul, and uh, it, it's been it was uh, it was a progressive thing. Uh, my alcoholism went from binge to going to the bar most nights, uh, most days after work, uh, coming home, having dinner, drinking all night. This went on for years, and after I got into so much trouble, um, I lost my license once. I don't even remember which time. I, I did something in Lawrence. Uh, got thrown in jail, got arrested twice in the same day, if you can believe that, in Lawrence. Uh, I wrecked my car outside of Lawrence at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, been playing golf all day, went to jail. My buddy came to Lawrence. uh, alcohol? uh, Yes. I I refused (laughs) to submit to the breathalyzer, Okay. So, uh, because I was changing the tire on my car, and and, and so I wasn't in the car. I said, you, I I told the cop, I, this, never do this, fans, by the way, (laughs) when a cop says, uh, when a, when a cop says, uh, uh, I'm going to arrest you for DUI. Never say to the cop, uh, you got shit and you know it. Why don't you, just, <laughs> why don't you just cut the bullshit and let me go? He arrested me, right? So I go to jail and, uh, and, and I get bailed out at like 6 o'clock that night. And we go to downtown Lawrence. I get in a fight in downtown Lawrence that night. I went back to jail twice in the same day. Wow. Yeah, it was good times. Uh, so I lose my license. I, I promptly drive to Lincoln, use my brother's address, get another driver's license. Uh, so I can come back and continue my job as a salesman. So when you're a drunk, here, here's what happens, Paul. It, it, you, you learn to manipulate the system. Sure. You learn to get around stuff. I, I went and got a Nebraska license the next week. My license was gone for a year. Got a Nebraska license. This is back for all the computers. Uh, came back, went right back to work, got pulled over twice that next year, a Nebraska license, no problems, right? 
Could have been, could have, could have gone a hundred different ways, but I got out of it. Uh, so this, this continues to, to get worse and worse and worse. And uh, eventually, this is the story of all drunks. Uh, and, and, and as we get into where, going to rehab and stuff, all drunks have the same story, okay? It, it starts as generally binge drinking, uh, partying, having a good time, being functional, right? Having a job. And I was relatively successful this whole time. I, I was a successful salesman. I, I did a good job. I made a good living. Um, but I was probably putting forth about 30% of my actual ability. Sure. Uh, if that. Right. Every day I couldn't wait to get out of work to get to the bar. I'd skip out to go golf and I'd skip out to go hang out with buddies. I'd skip out to do whatever. I'd come in late because I was hungover. Uh, but I, I was able to maintain a relatively good existence. I bought a house at 22, um, got my wife through college, um, but it, it steadily progressed. Um, and all drunk stories, they all turn. Uh, you don't go to rehab generally because you go to the bar after work. You go to rehab because you get sick. Hmm. Uh, and so... People get sick almost always the same way. Somebody they care about, somebody in their life, wife, parent, sister, girlfriend, uh, child, says, quit drinking or else. Okay? That's always the catalyst, right? So in my case, my wife finally had enough. Um, I, I was it's completely out of control. I was drinking in the mornings. Uh, I, I, was, I, was, you know, I was taking off work, and, and it, was, it, was, it got to the point where it was all I was doing. <laughs> So my wife, like many wives do, says, you quit drinking or I'm going to leave you. And so I say, okay, I love my wife. I'm going to quit drinking, right? Um, because it's important to me. Uh, she's been with me through all this time. And, and so uh, I'm going to quit. The problem is it was too late. I, I couldn't. I was too far gone. So my intention was to quit. I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and just to back up, I've been through every inpatient, outpatient, AA, alcohol counselor, anger management, court-ordered bullshit you can possibly think of, right, to quit drinking. This has been going on for years. Mm. Uh, and, and I've always, and maybe the most I ever had was 30 days. And, uh, and then I'd always go back to it. Well, it'll be different this time. Well, when my wife finally said quit drinking or else, I, my intention was to quit. Uh-uh, I couldn't. So what happens is once you've been given this ultimatum, you have to drink but you can't drink. So this changes the dynamic, right? Now you're hiding it. Now you're hiding it. Yeah. And once you start hiding it, it always goes the same way. And believe me, I've been to rehab enough times to know almost all drunk stories essentially are the same story. You start to hide it, which means you drink vodka because you can't smell it. It looks like water and it's easy to conceal. And so I started to drink vodka and straight out of the bottle. And it was a very quick decline from there. Um, I went from being a, a pretty heavy binge drinker, drinking most days to a chronic alcoholic. Uh, and, and chronic alcoholic, by my definition, means I needed alcohol to function. Mm. I could not function without alcohol. So now, from a time frame perspective, what, around what age are you now? I'm about 34 okay. at this time. Okay. Um, I'm about 34 when I, went, when I turned chronic. Um, and, and again, what that means is my wife would get up and get in the shower in the morning. I would wait. I would pretend I was asleep. When she got in the shower, I would race to the garage and I would guzzle a half pint of vodka. Wow. The second I woke up. Yeah. I would usually puke part of it up um, and then I would finish it. Sure. And then that would get me through until the liquor store opened at nine. Then I would start the run from liquor store to liquor store to liquor store. Uh, and and I, I was so stupid, dude, because I always thought to myself, by going to different liquor stores, they'll never know I'm a drunk. The problem is I go to the same liquor stores at the same time every day. So I start at one on Shawnee Mission Parkway at nine, right when it opened every day. Here, give me my pint of vodka. And then at 11, I'm at one down on Lamar. Uh, and then I'm down at one on another one on Johnson Drive. And, and I go around. So I had five liquor stores, five times a day. I was drinking by the end. And thank God my chronic only lasted about 18 months um, because I almost died. Uh, but I was drinking five pints of vodka a day, which in, in uh, layman's terms is about... 84 shots of vodka every single day. Jeez. Uh, and nobody knew. That's, that's the crazy thing. When you are a drunk, and I mean a true, truly a, a, a sick alcoholic, every day is a tightrope. So you're walking a tightrope, drunk enough to function. Because if I didn't drink, everyone would know. Because I would be shaking and vomiting and sweating profusely, and I would be horribly sick. Uh, but I had to drink enough so that I could function but not too much that people could tell. Did you enjoy the feeling? Like what? what? No, 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 no. 
No, and this is where people don't, this is where I think there's a misconception. People think, well, you're an alcoholic. Uh, all you do is go out and drink and have fun, and it's glamorous. It's the worst existence you can imagine. There is, I wouldn't wish chronic alcoholism on my worst enemy. On my worst enemy. It is, it's a job. It is a 24-hour-a-day job. You will wake up in the middle of the night sick, 3 o'clock in the morning. If you don't have vodka, you can forget sleeping until you get vodka. Uh, I once went home to Lindsay's parents, thought I'm going to dry out three days. I didn't sleep for three straight days. I was withdrawing so badly that I did not sleep for three straight days. Um, being a chronic alcoholic is a horrible existence. There's nothing glamorous. There's nothing fun. You, you can't even let people know you're drunk. Like, you know, one of the things about going out to a party and being drunk, everyone's drunk, everyone's having a good time. No, you, you don't want anyone to know you're drunk. Right. So you're hammered, but nobody can tell. Sure. And, and so I lived with my wife for 18 months as a completely chronic alcoholic. Now she knew but she did it, right? Deep down, she knew, but she didn't want to face it. Sure. She did not want to deal with it. She wanted to believe that I was doing what I said I was going to do and getting sober. But deep down, she knew. Was there a time, so and I know there was so much, so many years, right, that um, it seems like you have a really strong recollection of how you got to this point and all the crap that you waded through and put Lindsay through, obviously. Was there a time, I, I drink socially, Mm -hmm. But even now, the older that I get, I don't really enjoy it. Like, I literally do it because Kyle has a drink or so-and-so has a drink. But I never really truly enjoy the feeling of it, or it doesn't make me feel good. And the next day, I feel like crap. So I guess my question is, before you got to be a chronic alcoholic, was it something that, like, you were like, oh, this feels amazing. Like, I love this feeling. And I you enjoyed it. I had so much fun. And this is why I tell people I, I'm a grateful alcoholic and, and grateful for a number of reasons, which we'll get into. Um, I had so much fun. I, I have a stories that would make your toes curl. I, I've partied with, with Major League Baseball players. I've partied with, with NFL players. I partied with Val Kilmer in downtown Tokyo. Yes. I've partied with Chuck Liddell. Uh, I've, I, I have had... I've lived the lives of 10 men, and, and, I, and I've had, I had a blast. And, and that's why I say I don't have a lot of regrets. Um, my drinking career was was quite distinguished, and uh, and I had a, a lot of a lot of fun doing it. Um, so so to answer your question, yes, uh, there was a time when I enjoyed it, and I I wasn't horrible at it. And it was more from just to hear you say it, paraphrasing. Then it was more about the experience that it helped create. Mm -hmm. Was it, it let you like cut loose a little yes. bit more, and not worry about stuff? It, it, or? it became I, I was it, it, it was me playing a character. Okay, I was playing a part, and, and I was expected to be this 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 certain person. And and I was a very popular guy. I had a lot of friends, um, and. I was always the life of the party, right? Mm. I was always the one that was supposed to show up with the, the booze, uh, if there was drugs involved, whatever it might be, I was the guy, right? And so I, 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 had, I had many, many, many outstanding adventures all over, all over the world uh, in, my, in my drinking career. But the problem is it was never really me. I was I was trying to play a character, play it was a part. Val Kilmer. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, yeah. in the movie, Doc Holliday, Ice Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah whatever. So, but I, I never I never liked who I was. Sure. That that was the root of the problem, and the root of most addiction, I believe, is that we're feeling a void in our lives. And for me, I didn't like the person looking at me in the mirror. Uh, and and the and the deeper I got into life, and and the and the and the more mistakes I made, and the more I could see that I wasn't the 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 employee I should have been, or the husband I should have been, or the father I should have been, or the son I should have been. The more I drank and partied and tried to show people how many cool friends I had, and uh, and pretend that I had money I didn't have, and and spent money I didn't have to go travel and party with with famous people, and and it was all about me not loving myself mm. and not not liking the person looking back at me in the mirror, and that eventually became me nearly dying of, of alcoholism, uh, and it started with me just not liking myself, right. And so did that start because you had said at 17 is when you started, and obviously there was some aspect of it that could potentially be in your DNA mm -hmm. per your mom. Um, you said that you, you started and got into it and you were always filling a void. Reflecting back on those moments, obviously you just hit on like five different items, not being the dad that you wanted mm -hmm. to be, the husband, looking in the mirror. Do you notice things from your childhood that helped create this, this void in your life? Well, yeah, if I, if I had to, you know, play psychologist a little bit, my dad uh, who adopted me. So my biological father uh, left when I was, when I was about three, 
Uh, my dad, who adopted me, was was uh, the principal and a wrestling coach. Very strict. Uh, loved me. Uh, he was the principal in Footloose. Yeah. <laughs> he loved me. He loved me. Uh, there's no doubt. Never made me feel like I wasn't his biological father ever. That's probably the greatest compliment I could pay the man. It's never once in my life have I felt like I wasn't his. Yes. Um, but he, because he was the principal and the wrestling coach and he got the other kids in trouble, I always felt like I had to prove something, right? Sure. So I was always trying to prove something. And people always tried to get me to drink because, hey, we can get Mr. Hobbins' son to drink. Yeah. This might, this might change things. And, the and preacher's daughter. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. So, so, we, so, so this went on and, and for years. And, and my dad was very well-respected well and, and my mom too. And they were both active in the church. And um, I'll, I'll never forget um, my senior year. Um, I had just won a state title. In wrestling, uh, and I was on the uh, the one act play, and I decided it would be a good idea one day to get a, a five gallon bucket filled with beer and snow after school. It was nice; it had been snowed all weekend. So we, me and a buddy, got a bunch of beer and put it in a five gallon bucket, covered it in snow, and decided to drive down the highway, throwing snowballs at oncoming cars. Right, so somehow we thought this would be a good idea. Yeah, just so happened to hit a state patrolman who was undercover. Of course you did, right? Because you were drinking. Yeah. And you're allergic to yeah. handcuffs. So, so this, is a big scary, this is a big, scary-looking dude, right? Beard and the whole thing, and he starts chasing us, and we're like, "Well, we can't fight this guy. He's big. So let's race back to Osceola, where I grew up, and let's see if uh, if we can get some buddies and we'll fight this guy." Well, sure enough, he'd radio ahead. We go in a, in a town. It's like the you dude. were going to fight the cop. Oh yeah, we didn't know he's a cop though. Oh, okay. <laughs> So, so we're going to race back to town, get all of our friends and fight this big, scary looking dude, right? And we race back to town. And sure enough, it's like the Duke's a hazard, man. Cop cars all lining up to town when we come in. He'd radio ahead. They were all waiting for us, right? So we're winging beers out the truck, <laughs> flinging them down the highway, you know. And of course, I get arrested and, and, and my parents are sad and I get kicked off of the one-act play. And that Is that teacher- the first time you were arrested? Yes. Okay. Yes, that was. That was the first time I was ever arrested. Sorry I, to interrupt. Yeah, no, no, I believe it was. I, I, it hadn't occurred to me, but I think that was the first time ever. Uh, the first of many, uh, actually. Uh, and uh, The and teacher, you, you were saying, the teacher. So she never spoke to me since. Oh. I, I, was, I was the male lead, and I was the only man in, male in the, in the show. Wow. And so they had to have a, a, an understudy, a, a gal, play my part. Wow. Yeah, so she never spoke to me again. My parents were very, very upset, and, and it, my relationship with my parents really went downhill uh, from that point. Um, I had moved home briefly that next summer and they threw me out and, um, I was, I was in active rebellion uh, against my parents and against everything that, that they had taught me. Um, again, trying to prove to people how cool I was. Yes. That was the whole thing. I, I was playing a game to, to see, and, and by, by God, Paul, I'll tell you, I was cool, man. Everybody knew me, <laughs> and, and I ran that UNK campus. Uh, I, you know, it, and I, I was popular, and, and I had the girls, and I had the fun. and, and I could Everything fight. that society told you would yeah, make you happy. And I could fight like hell. Right. And, and, uh, and so— Man, it was it was great, and my my time at UNK was uh, was a blast. I met my lifelong friends, um, and um, but then it's progressively, like I said, that's when the disease took hold. Was when I was in college, it really took hold, and it progressively uh, got worse until uh, you know it eventually came to a head. So uh, thank you for for revisiting that because I wanted to understand kind of the foundational premise of. Because everybody there again, be everybody, some abandonment there. You yeah. know, my, you know that the, the, the was buried. My 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 father, my biological father, leaving when I was young, and, and not really giving me up for adoption. Sure, not wanting anything to do with me um, for many years. Sure, uh, we have a relationship now, uh, although not close. We have a relationship. Um, I've forgiven him, um, and uh, but but I think there may have been some abandonment issues. Um, some of those things, and and obviously my my intent isn't to rehash that or or create something that's not there, but. You know, one of the activities in the the book, the Fundamism book, that uh, I bestowed to you uh, mm-hmm. in one you of our, our relationship-altering moments at the gym, one of the activities uh, is really centered around self-reflection. Mm-hmm. And specifically, like thinking about everything that you are, identify some of the moments in your life that helped shape your perspective that got you to this point. So I find that self-reflection is one hell of a trait. Like if you sit the, if you just take some time to think about how you got here and not dwell on the stuff that's not working, but more specifically, think about uh, the memorable experiences in your life that help shape your mindset and your, your perspective and your addiction, whatever it may be. I think that could really arm you with the skills necessary to move forward. So circling back, you, you established a foundation. Greatly appreciate you going down that rabbit hole with me. You had left off in the story about you were now a, a bona fide alcoholic. You're hiding it. You're drinking. You're on the liquor tor- store five, yep. six times a yep. day. Yep. You're drinking eight, the equivalent of 84 shots, yeah, right? Now what? 
Well, your health deteriorates quickly. My health. So, so every morning, uh, every morning when I when I would drink that first half pint, I always save a half pint um, or have one ready uh, because I couldn't wait till nine a.m. to drink. Uh, so, so there was always a, a little bit in the, in the in the garage hidden in my golf bag, which I wasn't using because I was drunk all the time. And uh, <laughs> that's when I'm the best golfer. <laughs> so, so every morning it was the same thought that would go through my head every single morning. I would get up and I would grab that bottle of vodka and I would say to myself, "I'll never forget this." Uh, this is going to end badly. Every day, same thought. This is going to end badly. I knew it was going to end badly. I didn't know when. I didn't know how. But I knew it was going to be bad. Sure. Right? And, and this is the thing that drunks struggle with. Nobody ever says, I need help. Take me to rehab. Right. I knew. And, and people think, though, if you're a chronic alcoholic and you're just in this cloud and this haze and you don't know what's happening to you, that's bullshit. I knew exactly what was happening to me. I could see it happening. I could feel it happening. I knew. I was 100% cognizant that I was dying, that I was killing myself every single day. And I, when they say... Uh, you are powerless. Um, I was powerless. I, I was I, I was completely powerless uh, against my alcoholism, and uh, I knew that it would end badly. So so it did. Uh, it, it did end badly. Uh, I was in a I was in a car accident. Um, I was I was driving um, on Metcalf, and uh, thank God it, the accident wasn't my fault. Believe it or not, uh, somebody ran across uh, at the intersection of Shawnee Mission Parkway and Metcalf. Somebody crossed three lanes of traffic and and hit me and ran me into the. Uh, into the medium and uh, knocked me unconscious and uh, did some damage to my ribs, concussion, um, some other things. I, I don't remember. I, I woke up in the hospital um, and uh, I was I was going through this battery of tests and uh, and, and and they said uh, I remember they, the the cop coming in and they said, "Well, this cop wants to talk to you." The EMTs thought they smelled alcohol in your breath. I said, "Oh no, they didn't." And so the cop comes in and he starts talking to me. And uh, we visit, and he asked me to take a breathalyzer. I had some cracked ribs and a concussion. I said, I can't, man. Well, of course, I knew I was going to fail. Right. But I, I legit told him, I can't. I can't do it. And he's talked to me for a while. I had a big chew in, in at this time, and he couldn't smell anything. And uh, so I talked to him for probably five minutes, and he says, oh, now, you seem fine. He leaves. Wow. It wasn't two, three minutes later. Uh, the doctor comes in and says, sir, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay, talk. He goes, my wife was in there, and, and uh, she had been, been going to her grandmother's funeral. She was on her way to her grandmother's funeral when this happened. And uh, she Lindsay had to turn around was. and come Yeah, Lindsay. And she had to turn around and come back. And so she was in the room at this time, and he said, do you want your wife in here? And I said, sure, why not? Well, we just got the results of your blood alcohol back. I said, oh, how was it? How was it? He said, well, your, your blood alcohol concentration is, uh, is 0.441. And I said, that's pretty high, right? He says, you're dead. You should be dead. He said, 80% of the general population is dead at 0.441. And I said, well, shit, doc, I've been way drunker than this. Uh, and, uh, and the nurse, she's bad. Yeah. She's, she wants the cops to come back and, and she's fired up and she's, she's having a fit. And my wife, of course, is crying and I'm laughing because I'm wasted. And, uh, and, and, and so my wife leaves. Um, the nurse is pissed. She calls the cop, tries to get him to come back. Um, I wake up in a, in, a, in a hospital bed detoxing the next day. And, uh, and I detoxed for about three days. I vomited uh, and, and, and didn't sleep. And, and they gave me some medication to help. But I detoxed for about three or four days. Um, and and I, I thought I was there for, um, for the head injury and the, and the ribs and, and these kinds of things. And, and about three or four days later, um, uh, an internist came in. With, with This was at KU. And she came in with a bunch of students. And um, I was just laying in my bed, uh, wondering when I'm going to get to go home. And uh, she says, uh, Mr. Hobbit. I said, yes. She said, are you an alcoholic? I said, uh, yeah, I suppose I am. And she <laughs> says, thanks you for telling me the truth. And I said, how do you know? She says, you're dying. I said, come again? She said, you're dying. You have six months to live. You'll be dead in six months. And I said, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> and so she pulls out all these pictures. Let me pictures. see the chart. Yeah. Well, so she did. So she pulls out all these pictures uh, of, thank God, I, 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 had, I had these ribs uh, injuries. And so they did a CT scan of my entire body. Right. And uh, I was battling uh, mush brain, which uh, was basically when you pickle your, pickle your brain uh, with alcohol. I have, at the time, I had uh, fatty liver disease. I had a A1, alcohol-induced hepatitis. I had uh, chronic liver failure, chronic renal failure. My kidneys were failing. Uh, and my liver enzymes were 19 times normal. Um, she told me that if I did not go to rehab, I would be dead in six months. My liver was going to stop, or my kidneys, one or the other. They were going to quit functioning. Um, 
And so I had a big layer of fat around my liver. And, and, uh, and so this, this finally gets my attention. Uh, and, uh, and I say, okay. And so we ended up making this deal and, and the cop had never come back. And so KU basically said, we're not going to bother with the cops anymore. And you're drinking and driving if you go to rehab. And I said, deal. I'm, I'm, I'm happy now, right? I'm overjoyed because I knew I needed to go to rehab. Like mm. I'd known it for months and months right. and months. And now I got an excuse. Like they're making me go. Sure. So I'm, now I'm happy. I'm like, fucking A. And you're good at fighting. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and this was going to be the fight of my life. Sure. I, I will tell you that. Uh, it was the hardest thing I ever done. So, so I was happy. So I, I did. I, I talked to my wife and she kind of chilled out. Um, I, I called my employer and told them what was going on, and they were relieved. Apparently, I was the last one to know that I was a, uh, that I needed to go to rehab. Um, everyone else already knew it. So when I told everyone I'm going to rehab, everybody's happy, right? So off I go. I go to rehab. Uh, I get through the program. I did twenty something days, um, and it was great, and I loved it. And I and I. But the thing is, Paul, I thought by going to rehab and just being away from booze, I was cured, and and that wasn't the case. Uh, so I get through the program. Uh, I graduate, you know, from rehab, and they're like, "You're great. You're good. Everything's gonna be cool." Two weeks later, I'm, I'm, I'm. The last thing I remember is leaving my house to go on a jog. I decided I was gonna get back in shape, so I go on a jog. I woke up three days later on a bender. I, I had outrun the cops. In, in. Uh, you don't know what, ha- like, what happened? Like, how did you? You I, went for a jog and went to I went the for a jog liquor and store. I, I went to the liquor store apparently, uh, and uh, and I went on a uh, on a bender. Um, and uh, I remember I was going to a sales call in Lawrence, Kansas, and I went to the sales call, and I had been drinking all morning. And uh, I remember that I must have fallen asleep in the parking lot, and the customer, my customer, was knocking on my window. Uh, and I woke up and thought, mm, I can't see him right now. Got to go. <laughs> Took off. And, uh, and, and then I couldn't find my wallet to get through the, t- 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 the, the turnpike. So I think the, the lady could tell I'd been drinking it. And yeah. she says, oh, well, I said, I, I don't have my wallet to pay the, the thing. I'm out here by K- on right. I-70. And yeah, she yeah. says, uh, well, uh, let me just go get this trooper over here, and, and you can tell him about it. Oh. And I said, no, I don't think so. Off I go. Boom. Take off like a bat out of hell. In the car, outrun the cops, uh, end up taking turn diagonal, taking some funky back road that I'd memorized before, got away, got home, passed out. And uh, the next thing I know, I'm being removed from my home by the police. Uh, my wife had called the police, and they're removing me from my home. And I don't really remember any – I don't remember the three days in between there. Right. I don't have any recollection. Um, so the thing about alcoholism, Paul, is that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't go into remission. It just waits. So you don't heal at all. If I were to start drinking tomorrow, I would be dead in six months absolutely be dead in six months. There's no question about it. So, so I had taken this three, four, five weeks off and, uh, and then I drank. And then the next thing I know, it was three days later. I have no recollection. Um, the cops removed me from the home. My mom picks me up. Uh, my, my parents had already would not, did not want me because I had gotten drunk and tried to fight my dad when my mom was having cancer surgery a couple weeks prior. So I had nowhere to go. I, no one would take me. I had to call Valley Hope and ask if I could come back. So I went back to rehab. And this is, this is where the story, you ask about those defining moments, Paul. This was the defining moment for me. I went back to rehab. And um, at this point, I had made the decision, um, I didn't want to live anymore. At least not like this. I did not want to live anymore. So I decided that either I was going to get better or I was going to end my life directly or indirectly. I was either going to kill myself or drink myself to death. Mm-hmm. I was over it. I didn't want to live anymore. I didn't want to live like this anymore. I didn't want to drink anymore, but I was powerless to stop it. How old are your kids at this time? This was uh, nine years ago. So Jared was, um, Jared was 10, and uh, Jordan, who turned 16 yesterday, so he would have been seven. Um, thank God Jordan doesn't remember a lot of it. Jared does. Um, so I made the decision that, that again, I'm either going to get, get it right or I'm going to kill myself. Uh, I cannot do this anymore. And I knew now my wife had decided to leave me. Um, I was pretty certain that my employer was not going to have me anymore. Uh, I still didn't know whether I was going to prison or not over the, over the last, the, the car wreck. Um, nobody wanted me. I had nowhere to go. Uh, so 
This is when we talk about rock bottom, when your family doesn't want you, your wife doesn't want you, your kids, you, your wife won't let your kids come anywhere near you. She's taking all access to all money. Uh, I have no cell phone. I can't even find my wallet because I lost it in that wreck. Um, so basically, I, I had no prospects. I had no job. I had no family. I had no hope. It was, uh, it was, it was, it was a defining moment. Mm. I was at rock bottom. Um, there was nowhere to go. Uh, it was either time to get busy living or get busy dying, sure. as they say. And so, uh, so that night, uh, the date I remember the Daytona 500 was on, and I and, I, and that night I went to the chapel at, at Valley Hope in Ashton, Kansas, and I went to the chapel, and uh, it was late, and I and I got on my knees, Paul, and uh, I begged God to save me. I mean, I begged, and I begged, and I have no idea how long I was in there. I, I don't know if it was an hour or if it was four, um, but I cried, and, and this is a guy who at the time was unable to cry. I, I, had, I had lost my best friend uh, to a tragic accident, and, and, and I had so much horrible things happen to me that I, I just, I, had, I didn't think I could cry, and I did. I cried and cried and cried and cried and cried, and I begged God to save me. Uh, I told him I got nothing left. I got no will to fight. I'm powerless. I can't do this. Uh, either you're going to save me or I'm, it's over. And, uh, and so that's when I, uh, and I, I tell people I felt the hand of God and it's the first time I ever felt it. And I don't know that I'll ever feel it again. And I, and, and I don't know that some people may never feel it, but I felt it. And, uh, and it, and it, uh, <clears throat> it changed my life. Paul. Um, I felt the feeling of warmth that night that came over me some point in this kind of meltdown I was having in this horrible, um, position I was in where I was either wanted to die or, or, or get better. And uh, I had this feeling of warmth and calmness and clarity come to me in that moment, that night in that chapel. And uh, I don't know how long it lasted, but I know that when, when it ended, it was over. It, it was like the whole thing was, uh, was over. And uh, I don't know how I knew, but I knew. Man, it was just, it was, it was the biggest weight being lifted off my shoulders uh, that, that, that I could never describe it to anyone who's never experienced it. I knew it was over. I knew I was going to get better at that point. And I, I threw myself into it like you wouldn't believe. I threw myself into recovery uh, from that point on. Now, nobody wanted to hear it. My wife didn't want to hear it. My parents didn't want to hear it. We've been here before. Yeah. No, nobody wanted to hear it because they've heard it a thousand times. Right. Uh, and, and I was okay with me. Um, I no longer had any hostility. I no longer had any resentment. I never, no longer blamed anyone for any of it except myself. And so I, I was okay. I, I, you know what? And, and I quit calling my wife every five minutes and begging forgiveness and begging her to take me back. And I, I just quit all that shit. And I said, you know what? I got to get better for me. Because if I don't get better for me, it don't matter what, what else is out there, I'm going to be dead. Mm. So I, I, at that point, it became a very selfish endeavor. And I, and I said, forget my wife, forget my kids. And that sounds harsh, but that's the way it had to be. Um, they tell you in recovery, anything you put in front of your recovery, be prepared to lose it. So from that point until today, my recovery, my sobriety is number one. Uh, it is the most important thing in my life because without it, I've got nothing. Right. So- I threw myself into recovery. I threw myself into uh, the rehab, and uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I I steadily began to get better. I was released again uh, after twenty something odd days, and uh, I decided to do exactly what they told me. And I and I went to uh, my wife had had graciously allowed me to come stay at home until I found a place to live. So she made me sleep in the basement, but uh, she had seen enough to at least not be afraid to have me around the kids. So I moved in back home into the basement, and I went to 180 AA meetings in 180 days. Um, I went every day, and I lifted, and I got better, and my confidence came back, and my life began to change, and I started to like the man staring at me, staring back at me in the mirror again, and ever since then, I have practiced very hard in making good choices. Mm. Um, and my life has steadily gotten better and better and better and better. And better things have been happening to me because I've been making better choices. And I've been able to rebuild uh, my marriage, my relationship with my children, my parents. Um, obviously, my career is in a great place. Um, so, But that, that defining moment was when God saved my life uh, back in 2011. Dude, I, I mean... I admired you before, uh, 
I admire you a great deal. And the fact that, you know, for, for folks like you um, and myself, more so you, that uh, have thrived your whole life being a fighter, being an individual that knows everybody and connects with everybody and is the life of the party and everybody respects and is the fucking cock of the walk, excuse mm-hmm. me, right? It is so difficult uh, for us to be vulnerable mm-hmm. and to hear you uh, bury your soul in a manner uh, that's both authentic, um, warm, believe it or not. I mean, you don't, you don't feel it. You don't hear mm-hmm. it. But, but it's, dude, so many people could relate. I lost a father to addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I have somebody that I look up to a great deal in my life, a family member um, that is going through it right now due to a spouse of addiction. And that individual hasn't had the epiphany in their life that you have. Uh, they, they lost their family. Well, that's one of the reasons I'm here, and that's one of the reasons I'm doing this. Um, I made a covenant with God that night, back in February of uh, 2011. And my, my side of the covenant, um, they say sobriety is a unique gift in that you can't keep it unless you give it away. Sure. So my side of the covenant was, um, if, 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 you, if you save me from this, God, I promise I will spend the rest of my life trying to save others. Um, I will I will give when I can give, whether it's whether it's my time, whether it's my my insight, whether it's my expertise in all things uh, substance abuse related, whether it's my money. Um, you know, at the time, I I, I was broke, uh, but I'm not now, and so now I'm able to help um, with with uh, donations here and there to, to different or- organizations and and charities and, and individuals who who need my help. Um, whatever I can do to save a life or to make somebody's life better, that's part of my covenant, right? So every, everything I do moving forward is about how do I keep this gift and, and at the same time give it away. Mm. Um, and, and both are critical, and, and, and they're, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. They're, you, they're, you, you, they're both part of the same deal sure. that I made with God. So, so part of the reason I'm here and talking to you is, even though it's, it's a little weird for me to, to, to have this conversation that's going to be out on, on the internet, I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine today who's in recovery, and he told me, if this story connects with one person right. uh, who is sick, who's struggling, who needs help, uh, you might just save somebody's life. And if that's the case, then it's well worth it. Every year on my anniversary of my sobriety, I put a post on Facebook, and I get tons of likes and, and tons of comments, and, and that's not the point. The point is I also tell people to reach out to me if you need help. Right. And every single year, at least two, as many as six, reach out. people reach out to me, friends or friends of friends or family members, and say, Kyle, I need help. My fam- my father needs help. My brother needs help. Somebody needs help. How do I get help? Right. And that's what I do. So for individuals that are struggling with addiction or know somebody in their in their family that is, or a friend maybe, is is the epiphany that you need help, does that have to come internally? Uh, and because specifically like, you know, in my life, I know folks that they, they literally have given up and, and probably not by choice in the moment, like, like, you, mm-hmm. like you are a prisoner, mm-hmm. right? But giving up family, kids, uh, loving spouse, amazing job, you know, all of this stuff, and they're still in that rut, the proverbial, you know, addiction rut. What is it? Is it possible to get out? Um, I know it's possible to get out. I'm trying to find a way to... Do they have to do it internally, or can somebody like you shine a light on it for them and say, you know? Well, Paul, I, I know what you're trying to ask, and yeah, the answer is 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 as simple as it is complex. Um, Thank you, because I made it super <laughs> complex. To well, ask the it, it, it's a complex answer, the, it, it, and it's also simple. The the simple answer is uh, no. You can't get better unless you want to get better. Right. Um, and, and I can generally tell when someone reaches out to me or I'm working with somebody, I can generally tell in five minutes whether it's a waste of my time or not. Sure. Um, you, the best professionals in the world, and believe me, I had them. Uh, at the time, Valley Hope, I think, had the thir- third highest recovery rate in the United States, and it was 42%. Uh, and that was the third best in the country, uh, 42%. 11 people that I was in rehab with are dead. Um, it's, it's not a joke. It's, uh, it's a real Sickness is plaguing our society. And, and so the, the simple answer is no. You can't get better unless you personally, you don't have to have an epiphany. You got to grow a pair and decide it's time for me to change. Mm. It's time for me to get better. The bad news is alcoholism and addiction are cunning and they're powerful. Um, they also teach you to lie, cheat, steal, manipulate, whatever it is. Everything that you don't want to be, uh, they force you to be that way. So if you don't want to get better, the best professionals in the world cannot fix you. The good news is 
when you reach a point, and and the and the unfortunate part is, you almost always got to bottom out. And I wish it wasn't that way, and I wish I didn't have to tell people that. But if your if your bottom is too high, you're gonna you're gonna dig deeper. Generally, right. you're gonna go lower. And I did, sure. uh, I did. I, I kept digging, and I kept digging, and I kept digging, uh, and until I finally hit a point where I, I literally, Paul, wanted to die. Uh, I would prefer every day I woke up wishing I hadn't. Um, and I don't think I ever would have changed had I not gotten to that point. It was, I had to make a decision. Do I want to live anymore? And if I do want to live anymore, I can't live like this. Right. So the, the sad part is that's, that's the nature of the disease. Um, and, and so if you haven't gotten to a point where you believe you absolutely, with every fiber of your being that you have to, you want to, you believe and you get better, you won't. And the other thing that changed it for me was I finally realized that it was out of my hands. I had tried. I couldn't do it. I could not quit. Without a belief in a higher power, and it can be God or Buddha or whoever it is that you believe is, is someone more powerful than yourself. It doesn't matter who you pray to. But if you don't, without a belief that someone, a higher power than yourself can take this addiction away, it's hard. It's, mm. a, it's an uphill battle. Sure. Um, and, and, and that's what saved me was, was my belief and my finally willingness to let it go and, and give it over to God and say, God, save me uh, or don't. Um, but I'm over it. I'm done. What I find amazing about this whole story is, so now, now we're going to, so you, you, you bottomed out mm-hmm. and then you, you found help mm-hmm. and that hand that you referenced promoted your growth mm-hmm. and got you to a point where you were strong enough to pursue and to uh, overcome. And dude, like now, uh, obviously things have changed considerably. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So, um, so your your career now has culminated as the president of the spot that we're at now, mm-hmm. right? Electric contracting company, and one of the reasons why I was so enamored with you when we met is, I, I mean, I didn't even know all of this stuff. We started bonding over again social mm-hmm. styles and people development. Um, talk to me a little bit about leadership and how all of that experience that you just went through kind of shaped your vantage point and how you lead people now? Well, uh, so a couple things. I, I, I don't share uh, what I do with a lot of people because it's not important. Um, I'm very proud of what I do. I'm very proud of the fact that I'm president of a $30 million company. Um, but that's not who I am. That's what I do. Who I am is, is a whole different story. And that's where people get it messed up. Uh, that's what I do, and I love it. I'm terribly, terribly proud of it. But that's not my legacy. My legacy is what do I do for people who need help, Right. How do I help those who can't help themselves? How do I help those who are struggling with addiction or alcoholism or, or family members? A lot of times I work with family members. So to, to, to back up, how did I get there? When I got better uh, and when I decided it was time to get better, I, I identified, you talked about, about self-analyzation yeah. and, and, and looking back. I identified the three, what I deemed, I always knew I was a waste of talent. I knew I was a talented individual. I knew I was a smart guy. I knew I had a way of connecting with people. I knew I was a natural leader. I knew I had all these things. And one of the things I think that caused me so much struggle was the fact that I knew I was throwing it away right. with, with, with the alcoholism. Uh, and that, that caused me internally, I'd never say it, but internally it, it tore me apart. Because sure. I knew I was wasting a gift that God had given me. And, and that's a horrible feeling. So I identified the, the three things that I felt were the worst traits that I had, I had developed that, that weren't God-given traits, but I developed as, as a result of my addiction. And, and so, so those were lie. I was a liar. Okay. I was a liar. Uh, I lied about everything. Uh, everything. When you're a drunk or a drug addict, you lie about everything. Not because you want to, because you have to. Right. So all you survive, you manipulate, you lie. Uh, I never followed through with anything. I never, ever did what I said I was going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to meet you over here at three o'clock. Well, I'm too drunk. I never came. Right. right. Um, and I didn't make a habit of doing the right thing. I made a habit of doing the wrong thing, right? Mm-hmm. I made a habit of making a horrible choice, whether it was morally, whether it was financially, whether it was, it was my marriage, whether it was fatherhood. It didn't matter. Uh, if it was a shitty choice, I would. if it was a choice of, of good and shitty, I would choose shitty every single time. It was like it was ingrained in me somehow, sure. right? So, so I, I built my recovery on three principal tenets, right? Every single morning when I wake up, I pray. And I ask God to help me with these three things. And, and these three things are very, very simple. But I'm telling you, Paul, they'll get you a long ways in life, and I'm living proof of that. Tell the truth, okay? Simple. Right. Everybody's heard that before, but how many people really do it? Right. All the time. Sure. Tell the truth, right? Do what you say you're going to do. 
When you're a drunk, when you're living an active addiction, you never do what you say you're going to do. You do the opposite almost all the time, right? right? Uh, and you'll say things just because you want someone to leave you alone. Sure. And then you don't do them. So do what you say you're going to do. Follow through. Um, be reliable. Be accountable. Um, and the last one, and probably the most important one, is do the next right thing. Every day we wake up, Paul, and we're, we're presented with a series of choices, right? Every single day when you get out of bed, from, from what time you get out of bed to when you get in the shower to what color your pants are, you, you are presented with a series of choices. How you respond to those choices determines your lot in life, okay? So everyone's lot in life, and, and there are all lots of different factors, but I am a, a strong believer that your lot in life is a direct result of the choices you make, and I am living proof of that. I spent a lot of my life making bad choices. In my life, I found myself in a horrible, horrible spot, nearly dead, uh, alone. And I was going to die homeless and alone. That was, go- that was my destiny. Um, and drunk. Um, then I thought, you know what? Here's an idea. Why don't I start making better fucking choices? <laughs> right? <laughs> Light bulb moments. <laughs> so, 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 but it, it, takes a, it takes a conscious effort to realize where am I making bad choices? Um, am I making bad choices as simple as something I choose for lunch that makes me feel shitty? Am I making bad choices about where I'm going? Who am I spending my time with? What kind of people I'm associated with? Am I making bad choices at work? Uh, whatever it might be. Am I making a bad choice to tell my wife she doesn't look pretty today? Every day we got 100,000 choices, right? How are you going to deal with them? The answer to that question determines where you're at in life. So when I decided to rebuild my life, I decided to focus and make it simple. They say kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. Those three things every day. Now, am I 100%? No, but I sure try. Sure. Those three things. And so uh, after I got myself sober and got myself to a point where I felt like I was okay uh, to reenter society, I'd unplugged. I had to. Uh, I couldn't have any outside stimuli, right? I, I, was, I, was, I was gym, AA, home. That was it. I was not going to allow myself any chance to make a poor choice. So um, I came to work. I came back to work here in uh, July of 2011, and I took that same philosophy to my career because it applies to life and career. Right. Tell the truth. Do what you say you're going to do. Do the next right thing. Now I'm at work, and I'm doing these things, and I'm living this way, and I'm busting my ass, and I'm working harder than I've ever worked but I'm also no longer bound by these chains of addiction and alcoholism, sure. right? So, so all of a sudden, um, the talent is coming through. And uh, within a year, I, 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 was, uh, I was designing systems for engineers. Uh, within a year, the second year, I was the number one salesperson in, in the company. Uh, in year three, I won every single sales award we had. And, and, and it continued to improve, and I continued to build relationships. And one of the things that I've always done here is uh, it, I'm very, very – I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm not better than anybody. Mm. In fact, <laughs> in some cases, I'm worse, right? Sure. Uh, so that's allowed me to establish relationships with everybody right. in, in the organization because I truly don't believe I'm better than anybody. In fact, like I said, I, I may believe in, in many ways I, I, I'm worse, and, and I'm working very hard to rectify that. Uh, so I don't have this complex where, where, oh, my God, you know, I don't have a relationship with you because you have a different job than me. No. Uh, and, and so I, I developed these relationships. I, I had success. Um, in uh, 2015, uh, I was offered an opportunity to take another job. And um, it was a very uh, lucrative job with, with one of our manufacturers. And I decided to leave. And it was a very hard decision. Um, but I was ready to do something more than, than sell. I, I've been carrying a bag since I was 21 years old. So uh, I turned in my notice. I gave him six weeks. I was going to close up some deals and, and uh, help. And the guy who sits in this chair uh, and my branch manager here in Kansas City, he cried and cried and cried and cried. Uh, and then our, our founder and, uh, and our president of our first 58 years of, of uh, existence, uh, Adam Carvis, called me the day I was going to leave and uh, said, well, you know, Kyle, I was going to make you vice president of sales. That's a great fucking time to tell me that, Adam, <laughs> uh, on my last day here. Right. So uh, I, I assumed that I wouldn't have any. And again, this is where we get in trouble. I assumed that because I lived in Kansas City and our corporate's in Lincoln, I would never have an opportunity to advance. So I left. Uh, Adam told me as long as he's alive. Now, Adam's 85 years old. He works for me now. Uh, he was our founder. Uh, he told me as long as I'm alive, you have a job here. 
And that's a big turnaround for me, right? Sure. As long as I'm alive, you can come back to work here. Anytime, you'll never miss a paycheck. He told me that my last day. Wow. Within a few months, he wanted me to come back as vice president of sales. Uh, but now I had changed jobs, and I was loyal to the guy who hired me. And, and uh, loyalty was a new novel idea for me, and I decided to give it a go. Do the right thing. Yeah. Uh, so right I wasn't thing. going to leave. Um, I was in Destin one day on a Friday, and my boss, who had hired me to this particular company, called, and he said, uh, I'm turning in my notice today. I can't deal with this anymore. I said, okay, great. I'm going to turn mine in on Monday then. Yes. <laughs> he said, are you going back to electronic contracting? I said, yes, I am. He said, oh, good for you. I thought so. Vice president? I said, yes. Uh, so that was in, uh, I went back in August 2016. Um, had a lot of success as the vice president of sales. Uh, we set records every year. Um, I, I, I honed my leadership skills uh, in, in that capacity. And um, to me, leadership is, is very simple, Paul. Um, it's about empowerment. It's about uh, confidence in your employees. It's about uh, positive encouragement, positive reinforcement, always having a positive energy, not being afraid to get in their ass when they need it, um, but, but um, making people feel like they matter, making people feel like their employer cares, making mm. people feel like they count, sure. um, like they make a difference, uh, like their job is important. And um, that went well enough that on January 31st of this year, I was promoted president. My man. And uh, so I've been president uh, since uh, January 31st of 2019. We just had a record year. Um, we have, uh, we've changed how we do business here. And uh, it's, it's become about leadership. It's become about empowerment. It's become about uh, making sure that our employees know that they matter, uh, that we value them, uh, that, that, that our business uh, does not go without our people. And, um, and, and, and my, my directive from our owner was very, very simple. He said, Kyle, uh, when he hired me, he said, uh, just make it fun to work here again. And I said, uh, Jeff, uh, we might lose millions, but we're going to have a blast doing it. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, so that's where we've, where, we, where we've gone from here. And, and so I take a lot of these things I learned in this, in this journey um, and bring them to work every single day. So coming full circle, you just, uh, in a nutshell, with your amazing story of where you've been and all the adversity that you faced and the, the lowest of lows, it all, it all just, it, it plateaued. It culminated in make work fun again. Mm -hmm. Make it fun to work here again. And you're all about culture mm -hmm. and you're all about relationships. You mentioned that at the root of of everything that fundamentalism is, the you in fun is understanding others' perspectives. Yep. And I think it's not lost upon me. Uh, the reason why you're sitting in that chair is because you, you do genuinely care. It's not, and, and just to your point, others' uh, perspectives. When I, my, I, the way I, I word is always different, but, but it's not about me. Yeah, it's 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 no longer about me. I am I am here to shepherd this company to the next whatever it might be. Uh, our founder Adam is still a, a dear friend of mine. He still comes in twice a week. It's his company. He founded it. It's my job to shepherd this company. It's it's a sacred uh, endeavor that I've been entrusted with, and it means everything. Uh, so. At that being said, it's not about me. Sure. It's about how do I take this and make it about all these 115 people that work here. Sure. Um, and, and, and frankly, that's because of where I've been and where I come from, um, that's not that hard. Um, I, I've learned the hard way um, that it's not me that matters. It's, uh, it's, it's the people around me, the people that, that make this place go. Uh, or even at home in the family unit, it's 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 not about me anymore. Sure. So as we close this thing out, I know sometimes this could be somewhat nerve wracking to be put on the spot with a very specific question for you. This question is going to be easy because you spend a lot of your time helping others through mm -hmm. addiction and darkness and the places where you've been help you do that. So if anybody's listening today that either is battling addiction themselves, uh, has a family member or a friend that's going through it, what advice would you give them to move forward? Well, if you're the addict or the alcoholic, um, the only advice uh, that I can give you is uh, this disease, uh, either you're going to learn to control it or it's going to learn to control you. Um, so y you need to really take stock of where you're at and decide whether the time is right. Um, and if the time is right, uh, my first order of business for anybody, anybody, go to AA.org or go to NA.org and find a meeting. Yes. Go to a meeting. That, that's where you're going to find somebody that's got a similar story to yours, that's going to save you, that's going to help you, that's going to tell you what's next. That's always the number one advice. If you have a family member, uh, or if this is a family member that's hearing this, um, there's an organization called Al-Anon um, that um, 
Al-Anon. Al-Anon. And it's, uh, I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but it's, for, it's Alcoholics Anonymous for family members. Okay. For people who are addiction. And they teach what's called the three C's. You didn't cause it, you can't control it, and something else. I don't know because I was the actual alcoholic. Sure. My wife was in Al-Anon. But uh, Al-Anon is, is an organization that helps family members and friends of those who are battling addiction and substance abuse. And and they're going to teach you all about uh you know, enabling and, and, and this behavior and how do we, how do we get a handle on it? Um, and if it's to a point where, where they need help, uh, reach out to your, your Al-Anon folks or reach out to a rehab center and find out what, what it takes to, to, uh, to stage an intervention. Uh, you can't just stage an intervention without knowing what it looks like and how, it, how to do it. But, uh, I've been a part of several and, um, if, if they're done properly, um, they're, they're fairly successful. Well, Kyle, we've been trying to get this on the books for some time. Uh, I hope you don't take this lightly, man. We've done a lot of podcasts, uh, this is one of, if not the most powerful. I know that I myself can relate to a lot of things firsthand uh, that you said. And ultimately, I admire you just a great deal from being vulnerable and opening your heart and being willing to share your story because you understand the power that could potentially be held in sharing that story and helping others through it. So from the bottom of my heart, dude, thank you very if I, much. If I can leave people with, 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 with one message, Paul, what I would say is... Uh, just because you're sick, just because you're struggling, just because you're battling, you're broken. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. That doesn't mean that that you're not worth loving. That doesn't mean you can't turn it around. It means you're broken, you're sick, you go to the doctor and get help. That's what I do. There's no stigma. I'm not ashamed. I'm grateful for what I went through. I'm a grateful alcoholic, and I'm grateful because that whole experience, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but it shaped me and made me the man I am now. I would not be the president of this company if I had not learned all the horrible lessons I learned from addiction and alcoholism. So there is hope. There is help. Uh, find it. And, uh, and, and anybody, if I can get better, anybody can. Kyle Hobbin, delivering the goods for you guys. Hopefully you took something away from today. I know I took many, 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 many nuggets. Uh, as always, we greatly appreciate you tuning in. Uh, go out, create some fun in your life today. And uh, if you see somebody else, uh, very similar to Kyle's story that may need a little bit of help in identifying what fun looks like again, potentially go out and try to create that fun for them or help them through it. Have a great day. We'll see you on the flip side. Deuces! Deuces!